You're listening to a podcast from DTB. Welcome to the In This Issue podcast from DTB for volume 49, number 11, November 2010. My name is David Fazakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor, and I'm joined by Ike Yenichu, DTB's editor. Hello. This month we start off with uh, an alliteratively titled editorial called Price, Pragmatism and Prezugrel. Ike, what's this one about? Well, Prezugrel is an antiplatelet drug, among whose uses is treating patients who are undergoing a percutaneous intervention as a result of acute coronary syndromes. It has prominence, Prezugrel, as a drug, because NICE has endorsed its use in this setting. The editorial, though, focuses on the fact that clopidogrel, which is an alternative to Prezugrel, has, since uh, NICE's advice was released, the price of uh, clopidogrel has gone down. And that, we believe, has implications, really, for the interpretation and possibly the in- implementation of, of NICE's guidance on Prezugrel. If clopidogrel is now a lot cheaper than it was when NICE issued its guidance, does that still leave Prezugrel as a as first choice in certain people with acute coronary syndromes undergoing this type of intervention? So the editorial explores that issue. And the guidance that was issued at the time, the prices were much higher. We're not quibbling with what that said. No, we don't take issue at all with the guidance, how it reached its conclusions, or indeed the conclusion as it was then. The question is, does it still apply now in the new situation where the alternative drug, clopidogrel, is a lot cheaper than it was last year? And do we know if NICE themselves are planning to look at this? Well, according to its website, NICE plans to review the advice, so it'll be interesting to see what they come up with. Okay, so watch watch their site for for updates. Thank you. The first main article in in this month's issue is called Seasonal Flu Vaccination for Healthcare Workers. Uh, What do we cover in this one? Well, the flu season is coming up in in the UK, and this article looks at what's really been a quite a vexed question. Should healthcare workers have a vaccination against flu in order to help protect their patients against that condition? Ten years ago, the Department of Health issued a recommendation that all healthcare workers should be offered a flu vaccination for that very reason. But we know that in the UK, uptake among healthcare workers is low and essentially has remained low since the DH issued that advice. We're interested really in looking at what the evidence is that healthcare workers having such vaccination actually helps protect their patients against flu and in particular the complications of flu. And also some of the reasons why healthcare workers decide either not to have the vaccination, which is a majority in the UK, or indeed do take it up. And have we found examples of other countries or other healthcare systems where they've managed this more successfully? Well, obviously it's a bit tricky to say whether it's been more successful because other healthcare systems may be very different from the NHS. Certainly there are examples of where uptake has been much higher, but often that's required a lot of intense resources uh, in order to push up uptake rates. And if you're looking for evidence of the highest uptake rates, well, that tends to be where it's been mandatory for healthcare workers to to have the vaccination uh, as a condition of employment. So there are studies showing that uptake rates in that setting can be uh, as high as 90%, but clearly that's a very different environment from that which exists in the NHS. Thank you. The second article this month is a review of a new drug for atrial fibrillation. Dronedarone has recently been launched. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about it? 
Yes, dronedrone is a drug which has structural similarities to an antiarrhythmic drug which many people will be familiar with, amiodrone. It's licensed for use really in treating patients with non-permanent atrial fibrillation. Key strategies in managing such patients involve reducing the risk of stroke through anticoagulation, but also managing the, the atrial fibrillation itself, either by trying to keep the patient in sinus rhythm once you've converted them out of atrial fibrillation, or in controlling the ventricular rate in somebody who continues to have atrial fibrillation. What we try to look at is the evidence that Gerenderone helps in, in this setting of, of managing patients with uh, non-permanent atrial fibrillation. Um, so we look at the, the evidence and try to offer some guidance on whether or how it should be used. And its structural similarity to uh, amiodarone, does that cause similar sort of problems? Well, the range of side effects seem very different, actually, from amiodarones. So not without side effects, but the side effect profile is not identical to amiodarones. So a possible alternative for some patients. Yes, indeed. Thank you. And the last main article this month focuses on a relatively new group of drugs in the management of malaria, the artemisinins. Could you say a little bit more about these? Yes, um, these are a class of drugs used to treat people with malaria. So these are people with, uh, with active malaria as opposed to um, people who, uh, who are trying to protect themselves against malaria. They're a, a group of drugs which are probably not that familiar to, to most healthcare professionals in the UK, but are widely used in other parts of the world. For example, in, in China, they're well established. One of the issues about using them, though, is that there is only one licensed preparation or containing an, an artemisinin for use in the UK. And clearly that has some implications for when these drugs are used, or indeed how available they are. So... What we tried to do at this article is, is set the scene, really, for where artemisinins um, have been used, what effects they appear to have, uh, but also look at some of these background issues about availability and how that either limits their use or, or precludes their use in the clinical setting in the UK. And have they made their way into uh, UK guidelines and recommendations from, from uh, people who manage uh, malaria? Well, certainly guidelines are issued by groups of specialists give a nod to, to the use of artemisinin. So in that world, they're very familiar as, as potential treatments. But they haven't actually made it into some guidelines simply because of the reasons I've said, which is that uh, the lack of availability of, uh, of licensed preparations in some of the situations which they would be used has meant that people have shied away from recommending them. So does this new range of drugs offer anything uh, particularly advantageous for certain groups of patients? Yes, there are ad advantages. For example, one of the standard treatments for malaria is quinine, but not everybody can tolerate that drug. Uh, and certainly, in some circumstances, uh, an artemisinin-containing product may offer advantages. But clearly, if patients need parenteral therapy, then there's a decision to be made about uh, risks and benefits of using an unlicensed product. Indeed. Thank you. And finally, uh, in this issue, we have a brief update on our Don't Drop Mixed Art 30 campaign. And this month, we highlight some of the comments that, that have been received via the uh, petition, the online petition, where patients and uh, advocates of patients and carers of patients have put some of the, the 
messages that they think are significant around the effect of withdrawing this drug and the impact it will have on patients' care. If you wish to look at these or read any of these, please go to our website and follow the links through to the, to the petition. And to read all these articles or any previous articles, please go to our website, dtb.bmj.com. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com.